I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where we're delighted tonight to be hosting the first of three events featuring the extraordinary archive of 92nd Street Y in New York, a cultural centre that has for more than 80 years been recording um, interviews, talks, readings by poets, artists, writers of all sorts. Joining us tonight are Bernard Schwartz from 92nd Street Y and the poet Alice Oswald, whose awards and acclaims are too long to list. But maybe Bernard will in a minute. We'll also be joined by the disembodied voice of Ted Hughes by the miracle of technology, uh, which is the reason for this event because of the extraordinary recordings that have been made of um, Ted reading his poetry in New York. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to our guests this evening. As he said, uh, I'm the director of the Poetry Center of the 92nd Street Y in New York. It's been around since 39. It started recording readings by uh, poets and novelists and playwrights and everybody else uh, about a decade after that. And uh, we have thousands and thousands of hours of, uh, of recordings. The, the Poetry Center celebrated its 75th anniversary a few years ago. And one of the ways that we did that was by beginning an anthology where we uh, invited contemporary writers to pick recordings from the archive and uh, listen to them and write an introductory essay. And, and these are, are now available for free online, uh, these recording response pairs. I thought uh, it would be a, a great idea to, uh, to do it live. Uh, as well, I should say that uh, I'm, I'm in London at the invitation of Queen Mary and um, the English department there. I'm on a fellowship for a couple of weeks, and these three events um, are, are a part of, of that. We're looking through that fellowship at literature and live performance before uh, I hand it off to Alice, who, who will hand it off to Ted Hughes. I just wanted to mention that uh, the connection between Ted Hughes and the Poetry Center goes back to the very beginnings of his career as a poet in uh, 1957. He won uh, a first publication prize 
under the auspices of the Poetry Centre, judged by um, W.H. Auden and Marianne Moore and Stephen Spender. And um, that's how The Hawk in the Rain got published. It was published in the States first. He, he came over for, for his first reading at the Y in October of 57. For, for whatever reason, it wasn't recorded. But what we'll be hearing tonight are recordings of, of him reading from two later appearances, one in 1971, when he was on a reading tour with Richard Murphy, and a solo reading from 1986. And there's one recording we'll be playing from Memorial to, to Ted Hughes in uh, 1999. Now, Alice is going to introduce first, the first poem we're going to be hearing. Okay, so uh, we thought we'd start with rather an obvious choice, which is uh, Ted Hughes' The Thought Fox. It's obvious, perhaps, because it's a poem very much about poetry. He calls it the first poem he really kept. And the other lovely thing about this is that on this recording from 92Y, there's a beautiful, long introduction. And I'd never heard Ted Hughes introducing his own poems before, so it's very lovely to hear him talking about this poem that probably everyone in this room knows very well. So I'll begin with the first poem I wrote that I kept, which is also a poem that for me uh, commemorates my uh, departure from uh, studies of academic English. It, um, when I was about 25, and I'd begun to try and write seriously, one thing I tried to get hold of was a memory of... Um, one morning when I was about 15 or so, 14 maybe, uh, 13 maybe. Anyway, during the war, just toward the end of the war, and I used to go out shooting early in the morning sometimes, um, sort of delivering a paper around, and I used to go shooting as well, but sometimes before school. And this was very early one morning, and it was just sort of dawn, blue dawn, and one of my routes was alongside the river beside the town, a uh, big, dirty, poisoned, dead river. But the hollows beside the river were full of rabbits and rats and so on. And so I would sneak along the edge of this river looking for rabbits or whatever to shoot. And this morning I was creeping from one hollow to peer down into the next hollow, and uh, dividing the two hollows was a sort of high bank with weeds and the rest of it, and the little animal path going up and over the top. And I went up this little path, sort of not very high, I just went up on my sort of hands and knees and peered through part of the weeds at the top. And as I just peered over, a fox doing the same thing that I was doing but coming the opposite way, reached the same position, and we met at the top of the bank, just very close together, and then he was gone. But we just had that moment looking at each other. And the memory of that was what I tried to get. It was a wonderful moment. And um, so I set about trying to locate this. And as I remember, it wasn't the first time I tried to, f to, to find it. But uh, on this occasion, just a couple of weeks before, I'd seen a Swedish film of a Swedish farm 
in winter at night. And there was a sequence in this film of a fox coming through a snowy wood. So he was coming between the trees, through the snow, toward the camera. So his eyes were lit by the camera light, obviously. And he was obviously being whistled up toward the camera, as you can whistle foxes right up to your foot, more or less. <clears throat> and um, so as I wrote, as I tried to look for my fox back in my 13th year, this second fox intruded and sort of hijacked the poem, you see. And then afterwards it occurred to me that, and because looking backwards I'm more and more sure of it, the third fox behind it, which obviously provided key details of the poem. Get this thing right. And um, that was during my second year at university. I'd been reading English, and I got fed up of reading English and um, fed up of writing the essays, and in fact resisting the essays to the point where finally I just could not proceed with the essays. There was a dead blank. And the last essay of my two years, just before the first exam, was about Dr. Johnson, who I admire. I'm fond of him, like his poems, like him, everything about him, but I just could not write this essay. <laughs> and so I'd been trying for a day or two and a night or two, and I'd got three or four lines that I kept rearranging and pushing around and never got any further with it. And so the night before the essay was due, I was sitting at my table with a sort of window here, curtain down here, and a little stair and a door at the top of the stair, and about two or three in the morning, and I still couldn't get beyond my three or four lines. So I went to bed. And I dreamed I was back at my table and trying to push through my lines. And as I sat there in the dream, the door opened and round the door came a fox's head at the height of a man. And down the stairs came a fox on his hind legs, walking like a man, and walked across the room towards me. Big fox, big as a wolf actually but a fox, but not quite a fox because he had a man's hands. But the main thing about him apart from being a fox was that he was just as though he'd come out of a furnace. He was just third degree burn from head to foot. Well, the whole fur was blackened and the skin was cracked and bleeding and baked and cracked. And these, he came across to me and laid his hand on the page, and the man's hand on the page, the burned and cracked, bleeding hand on the page. And he said, you've got to stop this, he said. <laughs> he said, he said, you're destroying us. And then he lifted the hand away, and the last image of the dream was that just the the beautiful palmist's print of his hand in blood on the page. You see, with the lines, everything perfect. You could have read his fortune from the print. And uh, that was the dream. And I immediately woke up and came round and looked at the page. And... But I thought it was um, timely uh, warning. So that's where I stopped my academic life. 
And then the poem, which was, I wrote maybe two years after this, three years after this dream. Um, I bring him snow for his burns and so on. Obviously, I try to patch him up. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive beside the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window, I see no star, something more near, though deeper within darkness is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, the fox's nose touches twig, leaf. Two eyes serve a movement that now, and again now, and now, and now sets neat prints into the snow between trees, and warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings, an eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly, coming about its own business, till with a sudden sharp, hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still, the clock ticks, the page is printed. Feels as if we should clap, really, but... Um. <laughs> What do you say after that? Um, I had a lot of visions as an undergraduate, and uh, I wish I'd known that uh, you could just stop. No. Um, this is the first. This is the first poem that, that Ted Hughes uh, feels is good enough to keep, and this is a poem that um, is a classic. We're now listening to uh, a recording of him read something like. 60 years later. Alice, I, I, I thought we, we, you're obviously welcome to say uh, a lot more about the poem itself, but I, I think the audience would be interested to know how you came to Hughes, where you found him, and what it was like for you uh, developing as a poet to, to keep discovering him. Yes, I, I kind of have lots of different versions of how I came to Hughes, and I think the one I'm using at the moment, is probably that at a certain stage, I'd been very kind of narrow-minded, sort of while I was an undergraduate and a teenager, about the idea of, of the kind of formality of poetry and how it must obey certain rules. And the difference between poetry and prose was that, you know, poetry was every word kind of necessary, like a brick in a wall, and if you pull one out, the whole thing will collapse. And there came a moment, I suppose, uh, perhaps when I stopped following academic studies and started gardening, when I suddenly felt that I needed a different kind of tune and that these, these incredibly strict tunes that I'd been interested in before somehow weren't, weren't loose enough, really, for, for the kind of life that I was living. Um, and so I began to look at you know, how other people got rid of their rhymes and their meters and, and what do you do if you haven't got that sort of structure holding you in? How do you know what you can say that's still necessary? And I just couldn't find any solution in most of the contemporary poetry I was reading. But as soon as I started to read Hughes, I just could feel that there was something 
just as necessary in the structure of his lines and sounds. And so I became immediately interested in trying to work out what he was doing that meant that his language was still like that brick in the wall that you can't dislodge. And in fact, you sent me today an interview that I was reading up on the train in the Paris Review where he talks about T.S. Eliot's inner music and he says that T.S. Eliot's verse isn't free verse at all because it has this kind of compulsory sort of inner music inside it. And that, I think, says very well what I'm trying to say uh, rather loosely now, is there is a sort of really kind of um, undeniable music to Hughes' poetry, and that's what drew me to it, I think. And I, I like the way in that... I mean, I, I didn't realise, actually, because I haven't... I never went to a reading of Hughes's, and I was really delighted to find what long introductions he gives to his poems. And I love the way in that one you can hear the difference between his speaking voice and his reading voice. He speaks very fluently, very sort of richly. You know, you really want to listen. He tells stories. Uh, they sound like they're rehearsed, but he was obviously just speaking off the cuff. But when he enters the poem, uh, something quite different. There's a very different kind of sound. And people always say, oh, Hughes was such a good performer of his verse. And I actually don't like it when people say that because that suggests to me that he was in some way kind of speaking it up or speaking it more than it is on the page. I think he was a really good writer of verse and he wrote musical poems and when he stood up on the stage, the poem performed him and that's what you're hearing. It's like his poem about, uh, called In the Likeness of a Grasshopper where uh, he has this image of a grasshopper waiting on a path like a kind of trap and the music comes and picks it up like a violin and plays it. And I think you hear Hughes being played by his poems. It's not that he's performing them at all. The second poem, I think we should move, should we move to Pibroch? Well, yes, although I, I actually wanted also, because it's such a well-known poem, that, and I think it is worth just thinking a little bit about, you know, the other thing that I get from hearing that introduction is the fact of it not being one animal. It's that layer of three different animals. Uh, one of them actually has human hands and walks on its hind legs. And that's interesting to me as a sort of introductory thing to think about with Hughes, who tends to get referred to as a nature poet. Uh, but you don't find foxes with human hands in the natural world, at least I never have. And I think it's quite important to realize that he's, he's a kind of preternatural poet rather than a natural poet. Uh, his, his fox comes from the sort of metamorphic, metaphoric world in which all shapes kind of share each other's consciousness. And th that, to me, isn't a nature poet. It's something much more interesting. So, sorry, yeah, I just wanted to say that. The second poem we're um, going to hear is uh, called Pibrock. It's from uh, the collection Wadwo, and it comes from a... Uh, 1971 reading that Hughes gave. He says on uh, on the recording, which which we which we don't have on on the the poem. Many of you may know that the, the pibroch is a piece of music for bagpipe. He says no sound hits me as deeply as bagpipes. A familiar spirit is supposed to serve a family for generations, and I look on this poem as an heirloom. 
sea cries with its meaningless voice, treating alike its dead and its living. Probably bored with the appearance of heaven, after so many millions of nights without sleep, without purpose, without self-deception. Stone, likewise. A pebble is imprisoned like nothing in the universe, created for black sleep, or growing conscious of the sun's red spot occasionally, then dreaming it is the fetus of God. Over the stone rushes the wind, able to mingle with nothing, like the hearing of the blind stone itself, or turns as if the stone's mind came feeling a fantasy of directions. Drinking the sea and eating the rock, a tree struggles to make leaves. An old woman fallen from space, unprepared for these conditions, she hangs on because her mind's gone completely. Minute after minute, aeon after aeon, nothing lets up or develops. And this is neither a bad variant nor a tryout. This is where the staring angels go through. This is where all the stars bow down. If he's, a, if he's a nature poet, he's a very different kind of nature poet. Um, would you talk about this one, Alice? Uh, yeah, I wanted to include this one because mostly what excites me about Hughes is the way he kind of grew poetry on. He expanded it into something dramatic, something to do with legend and storytelling. Uh, he sort of wobbled the line of verse. You know, he did so many things that kind of grow it on. But uh, Pibrock, I think, is a, is a, it's a very poemish poem. It's got these, uh, you know, very kind of definable stanzas. It's got quite a sort of strong four-beat rhythm running through it. Uh, it's, it's very sort of melodic. Um, and I, I love to remember that he, and especially when he then turns to season songs or something like that, you know, you, you've got a really, someone who really understands sort of what a poem can be when it's just being a poem. And I think what interests me about this poem is that it's got all the elements of a Beckett play. It's a sort of, sounds like a despairing poem. You know, you've got the the sea crying with its meaningless voice. You've got the stone imprisoned like nothing in the universe. Uh, you've got the wind rushing around, you've got, uh, which is unable to communicate with anything. Uh, then you've got this desperate tree, like the tree from Waiting for Godot, and he compares it to an old woman that's fallen out of space. So it's like you're in a Beckett play, you're kind of in Crap's last tape, Waiting for Godot, Footfall. You've got all those really kind of desperate images, and yet it's a totally undespairing poem. Uh, it's absolutely sort of lit with the beauty of what it's describing. Um, and I did actually write down a quote, because he was, uh, Carol might correct me here, but I think he was a little bit scornful of Beckett when he talks about the Eastern European poets like Vasco Popper. He is much more impressed by what they do uh, with the sort of bleakness of life. So here's a quote where he was talking about Vasco Popper's poetry. He says, at bottom, their vision, like Beckett's, is of the struggle of animal cells and of the torments of spirit in a world reduced to that vision. But theirs contains far more elements than his. It contains all the substance and feeling of ordinary life. And one can argue that it is a step or two beyond his in imaginative truth, in that whatever terrible things happen in their work happen within a containing passion, Job-like, for the elemental, final beauty of the created world. 
So I'm not kind of really sure how he does that, that he kind of assembles pretty sort of awful images, but somehow gives you hope through them. I think it's partly to do with the, the colours he throws through the poem. You've got sort of blacks and reds, which aren't Beckettish colours. You know, Beckett uses grey all the time. He's using black and red. He's got the wind rushing around. But most of all, I think he's got these very kind of... Mostly he's just stressing the first syllable of each line. So you've got this very kind of upbeat sound, even before you get to that final couplet about the angels um, and the stars bowing down. And I think it's rather wonderful that you know, Hughes gets called a sort of violent or nihilistic poet. He wasn't at all. He, he had a really sure sense, I think, of sort of the nobility of humans and the sort of incredible gift of life itself and the earth. And, and so I'm sort of grateful for that, really. I think we should hear it again. Yeah, let's hear it again. Sea cries with its meaningless voice, treating alike its dead and its living. Probably bored with the appearance of heaven, after so many millions of nights without sleep, without purpose, without self-deception. Stone, likewise. A pebble is imprisoned like nothing in the universe, created for black sleep growing conscious of the sun's red spot occasionally, then dreaming it is the fetus of God. Over the stone rushes the wind, able to mingle with nothing, like the hearing of the blind stone itself, or turns as if the stone's mind came feeling a fantasy of directions. Drinking the sea and eating the rock, a tree struggles to make leaves. An old woman fallen from space, unprepared for these conditions, she hangs on because her mind's gone completely. Minute after minute, aeon after aeon, nothing lets up or develops. And this is neither a bad variant nor a tryout. This is where the staring angels go through. This is where all the stars bow down. We go on to Little Blood, which is another very poemish poem, I think. Do you want to hear it first? Uh, yes. I mean, perhaps it's just helpful to people to know uh, that this is Little Blood is is one of the Crow poems. Um, but uh, and I'll talk a bit about what the Crow poems are afterwards. Uh, it's one of the poems given to Crow by the spirit of an Eskimo. All Little Blood. Hiding from the mountains in the mountains, wounded by stars and leaking shadow, eating the medical earth. Oh, little blood, little boneless, little skinless, plowing with a linnet's carcass, reaping the wind and threshing the stones. Oh, little blood, drumming in a cow's skull, dancing with a gnat's feet, with an elephant's nose, with a crocodile's tail. Grown so wise, grown so terrible, Sucking death's mouldy tits. Sit on my finger, sing in my ear, O oh little blood. It's an incredibly strange poem uh, and quite hard to take in. If you don't know it already, it's quite hard to take in, I think, straight away. And I actually don't really know what it's about. I think the best account of it is probably Seamus Heaney's account. Um, 
he's got this wonderful kind of rhapsodic little essay in his collected essays about this poem. He identifies, I mean, Little Blood is just a name. Uh, to me, it's a bit like Wadwoe, in the same way that Wadwoe is just a name that conjures up a whole world with it. So Little Blood is a name that just kind of attracts a poem towards it. Uh, Seamus Heaney identified it with Shakespeare's fairies. He said it's the same sort of name as Peas Blossom and whatever those other fairies from Midsummer Night's Dream are. Then he became more accurate, I think. He, he talked about it in terms of, of Ariel. Uh, he actually relates it to a later poem of Hughes's in the Birthday Letters, uh, where Ariel comes and sits on Sylvia Plath's knuckle. Um, and it, it does have echoes with the Little Blood poem. And in fact, Ted Hughes, in one of his essays about publishing Sylvia Plath's poems, does talk about her having a strange muse, bald, white, and wild, in her hood of bone, floating over a landscape like that of the primitive painters. And that, to me, is quite similar to the feeling of Little Blood. But who knows what Little Blood is? Um, it's reminiscent of the gnats in his gnat psalm. It's got that kind of slightly sort of teasing, flying around feeling to it. Uh, it reminds me as well of, of the skylarks, um, those kind of uh, joy help, joy help creatures that he celebrates. And in particular, at the end of the skylark poem, uh, Hughes does this strange kind of... Um, he suddenly goes off into the, the Irish tale of that I can never pronounce the name of, Cahalan, um, and how at the... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. End of that story. Um, there's a, a lark sort of coming closer and closer. And I think that the point of that is. Hughes quite liked ending on a sort of a high note, a note of hope. And I think that Little Blood brings that tiny little sort of Pandora's box note of hope in at the end of the Crow poems. The Crow saga is this strange collection, life and songs of Crow, which interests me very much because they were supposedly part of a long epic that was never finished and that whose background story would come in and out of reading so that if Hughes was reading a crow poem, he would tell some of the story. Um, but that story wasn't written down. So it partakes of a sort of oral tradition in that there is this kind of background story that the crow poems come out of. But then the poems themselves were sort of final and completed things. In the preamble to this reading, uh, and also this, this was a reading from 1971, there's also some crow readings from 1986. And he tells similar versions of the same part of the story, but slightly different. And it's interesting to watch how they differ. Uh, and it's the point where Crow, who is God's nightmare, uh, and in the 1971 version, Crow is a hand that grabs God from the back and starts to strangle him, and is also a voice. And God challenges this voice uh, to do better than him. And this voice then goes down to the earth and becomes a Crow character. 
and the 1971 version seems to tell it slightly more from God's point of view, and the 1986 version tells it slightly more from Crow's point of view. Uh, Crow travels through the world uh, trying to find out where he's come from, asks lots of questions, and is questioned himself. And at a certain point, he gets to a river and meets a sort of monstrous woman who wants to be carried over the river. And the descriptions are very similar. Uh, Hughes had obviously really pictured this river. You know, he was quite a connoisseur of rivers. And he gives this uh, very similar descriptions from 1971 and 1986 about this cold river and how Crow's feet sank into the gravel with the weight of this woman on his shoulders. And she gets heavier and heavier as he carries her over. And uh, she will only become lighter if Crow will answer certain questions. So uh, he has to kind of respond, and that's how he gets over the river. And on the other side, um, an Eskimo in 1971. It's an Eskimo in 1986. It's the spirit of an Eskimo, which is a strange idea. Uh, I really don't know where this story came from. But a spirit of an Eskimo gives him these songs that are his helpers. And, that, and the songs are said to contain spirits. So one of the spirits the songs contain is Little Blood. And another one is Water, How Water Began to Play, which we're going to hear next. Uh, and I think that Hughes was particularly proud of those Eskimo songs. He talks in his letters about how you know, he's endlessly frustrated by the Crow saga because it seemed incomplete. And he took the Crow character down to hell, and he was meant to bring the Crow character back to heaven, and he didn't get that far. Uh, but he does say that with a few of the poems, he touched something real, or he came close to something. And the ones he mentions are particularly How Water Began to Play, and I think, I think he implies that Little Blood was another of them. Uh, so the next one we'll hear is How Water Began to Play. Water wanted to live. It went to the sun. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the trees. They burned. It came weeping back. They rotted. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the flowers. They crumpled. It came weeping back. It wanted to live. It went to the womb. It met blood. It came weeping back. It went to the womb, it met knife, it came weeping back. It went to the womb, it met maggot and rottenness, it came weeping back, it wanted to die. It went to time, it went through the stone door, it came weeping back. It went searching through all space for nothingness, it came weeping back, it wanted to die. Till it had no weeping left. It lay at the bottom of all things, utterly worn out, utterly clear. Thank you. I'm glad he got some applause at last. I think, he, I think um, we're, we're mixing these up, obviously, from different dates, but I think. In 71, he ended, with, he ended with that poem. It's the applause of him going off stage. Do you want to say something about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, 
Heaney refers to it as, as he says, those tundra cheeps, um, cheeps, C-H-E-E-P-S, <laughs> which I think is a compliment, but it's, a, it's an extraordinary... Uh, he was comparing Little Blood to what he called those tundra cheeps, the two Eskimo songs that come before. And yes, they are incredibly spare and simple, really, really beautiful. I mean, Hughes talks about the kind of simplicity he was trying to achieve with those crow poems. He wanted to sort of burn away the sort of sophisticated, civilised, sort of overspoken types of literature and get back to something much simpler. He says, my tradition, what I set my writing against is the primitive literatures, the absolute bedrock productions of nature, which I find most congenial anyway, and which seem to me the vital, vital and unchangeable tradition. Uh, and this, that comes from one of his letters, and he was quite anxious about how sort of sophisticated literary people would receive this really extraordinary kind of simple, simple but actually highly complex poem about Crow. Um, and you can hear it in that water poem. You can hear the repetitions. You know, water came weeping back. It's such a... It just keeps coming, weeping back, that line. But he gets it so right, so it doesn't become boring. And the way it, then at the end, it sort of is utterly worn out, utterly clear. There's a real reason for going through those repetitions. And Hughes obviously writes a lot about water because he was a fisherman. So one does hear a lot through his poems about various different rivers. They're mostly rivers rather than water. Uh, and it interests me that when he's writing the crow poems, suddenly it becomes it. Normally he uses she about rivers and he kind of loves all the sort of glittery descriptions you can make of a river. This is something as Heaney says, this is a tundra cheap. This is, this is the mineral water itself. I noticed that mineral actually is one of those words that Hughes comes back to. You often get a mineral stare or mineral stasis, innocence crept into minerals, the eye in a slow mineral fury balancing the death and mineral stare. I think it had a particular meaning for him, the word mineral. So when he treats water as a mineral rather than uh, a, a sort of geographical feature, I think he's doing something that's, that really means something to him. So that interests me. And this poem, it's worth perhaps noticing that it's in, it uses that structure that a lot of the crow poems use, where they just fling out line after line after line after line. And he sort of developed that that particular form, I think quite early on um, in his poem, Hawk Roosting, which he describes in his letters as being the poem he most enjoyed writing. Uh, it comes, I think, in Lupercal, is it? Um, so it's quite early on, not his earliest collection, but the second one, I think. Someone can correct me. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. Um, and he talks there about wanting to achieve the maximum possible musical shift between lines uh, so that where in The Hawk and the Rain the poems tend to be sort of um, coherent single structures uh, that seem to sort of have one focus point in the middle, in later collections you get this thing of each line having a new focus. And I think he developed that in Hawk Roosting and then later on it becomes the absolute way that the crow speaks. He talks about uh, Crow endlessly kind of attacking things with a fresh sentence. Uh, He has one thought and he throws it out, then he has another thought and another thought and another thought. And he then develops that right through the poem we'll hear at the end, um, October Salmon. He's developed that into an incredibly kind of masterful style. 
really sort of agile way of describing a living creature. Uh, but you can see it definitely in that water poem. The next uh, excerpt is, uh, is a break from, from Ted Hughes. It's uh, the actor Irene Ward. Um, she uh, she and, and Hughes had first worked together in uh, the 1960s when uh, she and, and Gilgood were in um, Peter Brook's production of Hughes' adaptation of Seneca's Oedipus. And um, this is a reading that, uh, that Worth gave at, uh, at the Y in memory of, uh, of Ted Hughes in 1999. And um, something of interest, perhaps, is that um, they had met uh, and Hughes was working on the, uh, the Crow poems. And he would sometimes read them to Irene Worth. And, uh, and they terrified her. And she asked him not to read them to her anymore. But uh, something else of interest, I think, which, which I'm sure um, Alice will speak about uh, after the recording, is um, uh, one of the things that, that you see come up in interviews of Hughes is uh, the idea of um, challenging oneself not to write in one particular style or embrace one particular public persona. And there's an interesting quote from him that, that I'll read now. It's certainly limiting to confine your writing to a, a public persona, like being in a close-knit family. The moment you do anything new, the whole family jumps on it. A unanimous decision to keep you as you were. <laughs> You'd suppose any writer worth his salt could be bold and fearless and not give a damn. Very few can. We're at the mercy of groups that shaped our early days and were so helplessly social. Also, there's a tendency to lay down laws for yourself about the kind of thing you want to do once they become your expected product. And these are traps. And here's the, the way to think about this next recording. One way out is to write a kind of provisional drama where you can explore all sorts of attitudes and, and voices. And in that interview, he talks about um, Treplev and Trigorin in The Seagull. And the pleasure of, of, of having the opportunity to explore provisionally different attitudes and ideas and different characters. And I think he was fulfilled in some of these uh, translation projects. I suppose we need to set where, do you want to set where uh, the speech comes in the play? Uh, yeah, it comes at the very end of the play. It's Phaedra's uh, dying speech to Theseus. Um, this is a translation of a Racine play. It's the most unlike Racine piece of writing I can imagine. Uh, and yeah, I don't think I have much more to say than that. You, you'll hear from the speech what she has to say. Uh, so it's the, it's the kind of the final speech in the play. Listen to me carefully, Theseus. Every moment now is precious to me. Hippolytus was chaste and loyal to you. I was the monster in this riddle. I was insane with an incestuous passion to amuse some malevolent deity. Now I am drunk 
on an infallible poison. I feel my pulses pushing it icily into my feet, hands, and the roots of my hair. I see the sun's ball through a mist. And you, my very presence sickens. I see you in a mist, darkening. My eyes grow dark. Now the light of the sun can resume its purity, unspoiled. Something I, I didn't mention, and I think, Alice, you should talk about it, the way that Irene introduced her, her readings that evening. Unless you'd like to. <laughs> I seem to have done a lot more speaking. Than she has a wonderful story about Hughes with his bag of mice, which is worth relating. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember the bag of my story. Um, no, but, 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 but also I think um, she, she has a particular point of view regarding the sort of inevitability of some of these verses of his and, and, and her, her point, which, which we don't have to, to accept, but it's worth talking about, is um, this kind of radical religious honesty. She, she speaks of, of, of him as a poet who um, was striving for, for something like that. In addition to the mice story, uh, yeah. which, uh, they, they went back many decades. And um, I should say, perhaps, that that was an evening where um, poets like um, W.S. Merwin and, and Derek Walcott also uh, paid tribute to, to Ted Hughes. And Walcott tells a story of he finds out that, that Hughes has died, and he's, um, he's at Lorca's house, and he just goes out into the back garden and, and sits for a while. And she talks as well about, um, she does have a very good story about, a, about oh, no, perhaps it's actually W.S. Merwin who has the story about the bag of mice. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Tell the mice story. Okay. Now you've, uh... <laughs> uh, W.S. Merwin lived close to the Hugheses in London and one morning saw a rather imposing figure hunched sort of over a little bag coming down the street and went up to him and said, what have you got in that bag? And Hughes kind of just opened it rather gingerly and said, I've been, um, we've got a mouse problem and I've found a way to trap them without killing them and I'm taking them in this paper bag to Primrose Hill or somewhere. Anyway, a long way he was going to walk with this paper bag of mice. And she quotes it as a, he quotes it, sorry, I've got the characters muddled in my head. He quotes it as a, as a story to show how, um, how gentle Hughes was. I'm sure, she, I'm sure she has a, a mouse story of some kind. Right? I'll, have to, I'll have to go back and listen. Anyway, what she does talk about uh, is the importance of silence to Hughes. And, and I think that's really worth remembering. Uh, there's a wonderful anecdote he gives in one of his essays about how he wanted to write an account of soldiers' memories from the Great War. And he spoke to two different people. Um, one of them had been through the most appalling traumas and was very eloquent about it and described really beautifully and harrowingly what he'd been through. 
The other one that actually hadn't had such a traumatic time, but was completely dumb about what he'd been through. And Hughes said he couldn't actually bring himself to remember that man's kind of dumbness and inarticulate horror without a shiver going down his spine. And he uses it to express how easy it is to think we're saying something when in fact we're not saying anything at all. And that sometimes the thing that really needs to be heard is the inability to speak. He talks about the way to try and, he, I think it's an essay where he's talking about Walter de la Mer's way of speaking his poems and how he can do it really kind of brilliantly and fluently. Uh, but when he suddenly describes a tree being struck by lightning out in the garden, Hughes can suddenly hear, ah, oh, you know, that's, that's the real sort of naked fear inside the man. And he talks about the duende, Lorca's ideas of the duende. And obviously he had spoken to the people who acted his plays about this particular quality and the importance of sort of interspersing the speech with silence, which is where a lot of that uh, kind of unspoken energy comes through. And you can really, I mean, she does that speech really beautifully, I think. She doesn't sort of act it up. She just leaves these incredible gaps that you just drop into. I love his courage in sort of tackling Racine, who is so very unlike, you know, the poet that Hughes made himself. You know, the kind of incredible sort of dainty order you get in Racine is just not Ted Hughes at all. But I think that from working early on with Peter Brook on uh, Seneca's Oedipus, he had developed a different idea of how you can translate a play like that. Um, there's a quote about that. Uh, he says that Brook was mostly interested in working towards the simplest, most direct release of the energies in that strange play. And so Hughes then translates that method into Racine, and you get a really extraordinary uh, sort of combination of things when you read that play, because it does have these, these incredible sort of raw energies in it that you wouldn't necessarily hear or see if you were reading Racine. Um, and I always think that Hughes's connection with drama is a very important way to think about his poems. Um, certainly the sort of work he did with Peter Brook over years and years, I know that he claimed later that it took a lot of his energy and wasted a lot of his time. But I think that working on Oedipus and also working on August, the play that used sort of um, invented language, must have given him some of his sort of ability to get through to the uh, sort of active parts of language uh, and to cut away the sort of highfalutin over Shakespearean sort of maternal octopus of literature, as he calls it. Um, Shakespeare, of course, as, as well, was an incredible influence on him. He spent a lot of his uh, years when he was doing national service just reading the whole of Shakespeare. Uh, but he doesn't see Shakespeare as this kind of um, important British sort of um, eloquent writer. He sees him as a sort of homemade emergency kit bag, I think he calls him, of, of sort of panic speeches. Um, are we running out of time? Should we, should we move on to the October sermon? Well, I, I was going to say um, what you said about the, um, the importance of silence is it reminded me there's, a, there's an interview with Hughes where, where the, he and Brooke are working on Oedipus and um, it's the night before the play is supposed to open and, and, and Brooke has this idea that um, they should read through the play uh, without silence as quickly as they possibly can. And uh, Hughes reports that it took about half hour 
and uh, Gilbert struggled, but it was one of the most exhilarating experiences that he'd ever had in the theater. And he and Brooke thought this was a, a, a wonderful way to present the work uh, until they realized it took about a half hour and everyone who was gathered was looking for a night out at the theater and that they would be disappointed that uh, they'd only got half hour's worth. Um, we also should play October Salmon, I think. Yeah, and maybe rather than talking after this, I'll just introduce it by saying, yeah, sort of thinking about that silence again. I'm really interested that this poem that, you know, it's one of my favorite, I think, I think it's a really masterful poem, the incredible sort of agility with which he just keeps refocusing on this fish in the river. And so I've always thought that it was, you know, a poem where somebody is standing on a riverbank looking very hard at a fish. And then when you hear his preamble, which actually isn't included in the bit tonight, but he talks about how um, his father, when he was dying, had come to live in the village and that there was a dying salmon in the pool and this was the walk that his father used to take. Uh, so suddenly this whole poem becomes... You know, it is about a salmon, but it's also very much about his father. And one of the mysteries of that poem to me has always been how incredibly Shakespearean it sounds. It, uses, it even uses the phrase king of infinite liberty. Uh, and it's got this real sort of rich Elizabethan Jacobean feel to it. And then you suddenly realise, oh, it's a poem about his father, and that's why it's got sort of quotes from Hamlet in it. And actually the whole poem really is Hughes's version of what a piece of work is man. So... You've just got, by not saying that it's his father and by not explaining that he's even sort of got Hamlet in his head, suddenly the poem, you can see why it's got that kind of power to it. So it's got so much background emotion and stuff behind it. Anyway, let's hear it. Yeah, this is, um, this is the last poem he read at the, the reading in 1986. And um, it was originally published in the LRB. He's lying in poor water, a yard or so depth of poor safety. Maybe only two feet under the no protection of an outleaning small oak, half under a tangle of brambles. After his 2,000 miles, he rests, breathing in that lap of easy current in his graveyard pool. About six pounds weight, Four years old at most, and a bare winter at sea, but already a veteran, already a death-patched hero. So quickly it's over. So briefly he roamed the gallery of marvels. Such sweet months, so richly embroidered into earth's beauty dress, her life robe, now worn out with her tirelessness, her insatiable quest hangs in the flow, a frayed scarf. An autumnal pod of his flower, the mere hull of his prime, shrunk at shoulder and flank. With a seagoing aurora borealis of his April power, the primrose and violet of that first upfling in the estuary ripened to muddy dregs the river reclaiming his sea metals. In the October light, he hangs there, patched with leper cloths. Death has already dressed him in her clownish regimentals, her badges and decorations, 
mapping the completion of his service, his face a ghoul mask, a dinosaur of senility, and his whole body a fungoid anemone of canker. Can the caress of water ease him? The flow will not let up for a minute. What a change from that covenant of polar light to this shroud in a gutter. What a death in life to be his own specter, his living body become death's puppet, dulled by death in her crude paints and drapes. He haunts his own staring vigil and suffers the subjection and the dumbness and the humiliation of the role. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there under the scrubby oak tree hour after hour. That is what the splendor of the sea has come down to. And the eye of ravenous joy, king of infinite liberty in the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life on the surge ride of energy, weightless, body simply the armature of energy. In that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life, the salt mouthful of actual existence with strength like light. Yet this was always with him. This was inscribed in his egg. This chamber of horrors is also home. He was probably hatched in this very pool. And this was the only mother he ever had, this uneasy channel of minnows under the mill wall with bicycle wheels, car tires, bottles, and sunk sheets of corrugated iron. People walking their dogs trail their evening shadows across him. If boys see him, they will try to kill him. All this, too, is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 